all the way back in the Garden of Eden, what was man, sinful man's first reaction when he sinned? Hide from God. That will everlastingly be the response of those who refuse to repent. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. The book of Revelation describes future and dramatic catastrophic disasters on a worldwide scale, a level unforeseen in human history. What will it be like? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of The First Six Seals, The Tribulation Begins. When the Lord Jesus Christ breaks the sixth seal from the scroll, a series of six catastrophic disasters will be unleashed upon the earth. An earthquake felt round the world, the sun blackened, the moon becoming like blood, the stars falling, the atmosphere damaged, and the earth's tectonic plates shifting unlike anything ever seen before. Truly amazing. No mere stuff of fiction, but a reality certain to occur. And that leads to a question. How should we as Christians respond to and think about these terrifying events described in the passage? Tom Pennington explains as he opens God's Word now on The Word Unleashed. Speaking of these disasters, they are shattering enough to lead human beings to leave human beings with the full impression that the ultimate end has arrived, but they are not comprehensive enough to amount to the total destruction of creation's order. Human life continues after these disruptions. All right? So let's look at these six catastrophic disasters. The first one is a worldwide earthquake. Verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Literally, the Greek text says there was a seismos mega. According to the Olivet Discourse, our Lord talking about the future, he said there would be frequent earthquakes that occurred during the first half of the tribulation, according to Matthew 24-7. Later, Revelation tells us after this, there will be an even greater earthquake in chapter 16, verse 18, but this earthquake will be the greatest earthquake that's ever occurred up to that time. Throughout human history, God has often manifested his presence in earthquakes, often in judgment. But this one is more than just an earthquake. Not only will the earth be shaken, so will the heavens. Because it's not just an earthquake. The second catastrophe is that the sun is blackened. Verse 12 says, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Sackcloth was a coarse cloth made from the black hair of goats for mourners to wear. Do you hear what John is saying? In the aftermath of the great earthquake, the sun will be as black as the clothes a mourner wears. Joel describes these events connected to the day of the Lord. Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's likely that 
the cause for this, this darkening of the sun is the resulting volcanic activity from the great earthquake. Volcanoes all over this planet will erupt, spewing ash and smoke into the sky and obscuring the sun. It's possible that's what's intimated here. Thirdly, the moon will be like blood. Verse 12 says, the whole moon became, and notice the word like, that's a key word, the whole moon became like blood in its color, in other words. The worldwide earthquake will undoubtedly be accompanied, as I said, by huge amounts of volcanic activity, and those volcanoes will produce smoke and ash that will make the moon appear blood red. Isaiah talks about this, Isaiah 13, 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Joel 2.10, before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Imagine, just imagine for a moment what that will be like. You've just had a worldwide earthquake. If you've ever been in a large earthquake that's localized, it is a terrifying event. Can you imagine one that shakes the entire planet? And then because of all of the resulting devastation, because of the volcanoes and the smoke and the ash, and we've just seen pictures of that in the news, because of all of that, the sun is obscured, the moon obscured. The normal cycles of daylight and darkness are are disrupted 24 hours a day. It's like this, this twilight The daily life of every person on this planet will be disrupted. If you think that the COVID pandemic has disrupted life on this planet, you have no idea what's coming. The result of this will be panic. And then out of the darkened sky will come another catastrophic disaster. Fourthly, the stars fall. Verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, the Greek word translated stars here can refer to literal stars, the way we use the word in English. But the Greek word can also be used to refer to smaller objects in the heavens. And I think that's clearly what's implied here. I mean, after all, an actual star could not approach the earth without incinerating it before it got close. And in chapter 8, verse 12, when the fourth trumpet judgment sounds, the stars are still in their places. So here, John is likely describing an asteroid or meteor shower that enters Earth's atmosphere and impacts Earth, creating huge devastation. This meteor shower is so large that it seems as if the stars themselves are falling to Earth. Verse 13 goes on to say, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Green, unripe figs easily fall in a strong wind. And the size and scope of this meteor storm is so great that it will it'll be like figs dropping from a tree down onto the surface of this planet. Relating to all of this, there is a fifth catastrophe, and that is Earth's atmosphere is damaged. Verse 14 says, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. You know, we, 
worry, and rightly so, about damage to our atmosphere, letting in harmful rays. We try to make changes that are some, gonna, some way going to tweak that. Well, this is going to be way beyond any problem we've seen. Here it's described, if a scroll is unrolled, and that scroll unrolled now splits in the middle, what happens? It naturally rolls from the middle to the side and forms a roll on each end. John says, that's like what's going to happen to the sky. Now, don't misunderstand here. This cannot be the ultimate destruction of the earth's atmosphere. That comes later in chapter 21, verse 1, when Christ destroys this universe and makes another. But this fifth disaster seriously damages the atmosphere of this planet. It will seem like the universe itself is tearing apart. A sixth catastrophe is the earth's plates, tectonic plates, shift. Verse 14 says, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Notice, by the way, there is no like or as in that sentence. In conjunction with the the worldwide earthquake and the resulting volcanic activity, the entire crust of the earth becomes unstable and begins to shift. Later in chapter 16, verse 20, there'll be another change to the surface of the earth on an even grander scale. But here, John is using, I think, some degree of hyperbole because if every mountain was removed at this stage, there would be no hiding place in the mountains in verse 16. So apparently many will move, some will even disappear, but it's, excuse me, It's not until the seventh bowl judgment in chapter 16, verse 20, that every mountain is leveled. But these six catastrophic disasters that come out of this sixth seal will be the most terrifying disasters to ever strike this planet. They are not natural disasters. They are supernatural disasters. They will be far beyond any doomsday scenario that a scientist or some scriptwriter could ever imagine. And these devastating supernatural disasters will create universal terror in verses 15 to 17. It's interesting, what strikes terror into the hearts of men on the earth will not primarily even be the disasters themselves, but the thought of God on His throne. First of all, in verse 15, we meet the classes that are affected by this terror. John lists seven categories in verse 15 that include every living person. He focuses, however, on the upper classes and on the leaders of the earth. In the end, the point he's going to make in verse 15 is that not a single one of God's enemies, regardless of his position or power, is going to escape the judgment of God. Notice the list, verse 15, then the kings of the earth. That's the heads of state across the world. And the great men, these are other high-ranking government officials. And the commanders, this Greek word describes the Roman tribune, commanders in the Roman army who oversaw a thousand men. These were the ones who actually ordered troops into battle. So these are the military leaders. And the rich. These are those who control 
the commerce and business of this planet, those who lead large multinational companies, and the strong. These are the powerful and the influential across all aspects of society. And then he adds, and every slave and free man. In the first century, these two categories included everybody else. So all unbelievers living on this planet, regardless of their position, power, or wealth, notice verse 15 says, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Clearly, God's judgment is going to be felt worldwide, and all classes of people without exception will experience those judgments, and they'll know that those judgments are from God. They will know the end of the world is near, and they will panic. They will hide in the caves and in the mountains. Undoubtedly, the reason for their hiding isn't just to shield themselves from the face of God. It's to shield themselves from the meteor shower, from the havoc that like bombs from the sky are creating everywhere. Undoubtedly, those who live in the cities will hide in bomb shelters and subways. All of this to shield themselves from the things falling from the sky. Go back to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Because here you get a picture of what the Lord is doing. Beginning in verse 12, God says a day of reckoning is coming. Notice verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. What does that look like? Go down to verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? This is what's being described in our text in Revelation. All the people on this planet, every class, every position, all the influential and, the, and those who are unknown and nobodies, They'll all be in terror. Notice the cry of terror in verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's of course Jesus Christ our Lord. The judgment of God will be so great as a result of these seals that those living will prefer anything, including death itself, to continuing to have to face it and endure it. They want to die rather than continue this, and they want to be hidden from God. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, what was man, sinful man's first reaction when he sinned? Hide from God. That will everlastingly be the response of those who refuse to repent. Then in verse 17, we learn the cause of their terror. 
Pick it up in verse 16, the where it ends there, the wrath of the Lamb. This is the only time in Scripture, by the way, where this expression occurs, and it's a, it's a very unusual expression. The gentlest of all of God's creatures filled with wrath. But don't forget, back in chapter 5, verse 6, we learned that this Lamb has horns. He has power. Our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the one who carries out this judgment on the earth. Twice, only twice during his earthly life are we told that Jesus had wrath. Both of those times are when he cleansed the temple, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. But during the tribulation, the lamb who was slain will rage like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 17 goes on. You know, hide us, for the great day of their wrath has come. The great day of their wrath is a synonym for that Old Testament expression, the day of the Lord. We just saw in Joel and we've seen in other places. Here in this case, the day of the Lord has begun, but it's not finished. Still to come are the seventh seal the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments, those are still coming during the second half of the tribulation. Undoubtedly, during the first four seals and the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, those alive had to know that this was beyond ordinary, right? I mean, in such a short period of time, they have to understand this is true. But once the fifth seal occurs, the entire world will know that what they're suffering is not natural but supernatural. They will know that the great day of their wrath has come. And verse 17 ends with this, and who is able to stand? That's a rhetorical question, obviously, and the answer is no one. You know, here is the truly amazing thing. Think about this. Even though the people alive at that time on this planet are convinced that there's a God. You won't meet a single atheist during the tribulation. They are convinced that there's a God, and they're convinced that the world is enduring his judgment. They still will not turn to him in repentance, pleading for his forgiveness and mercy. Instead, they will turn away from him in fear and call for the mountains and the rocks to kill them, and to cover them, and to shield them from him. They want to run. They will harden their hearts further against God not only will they turn away from him in fear, but eventually, as we'll see, their fear will turn into anger. As this continues to unfold, they won't just be afraid of what's happening. They will be so angry with God. They will harden their hearts, and then God himself will harden their hearts. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about that, right? God will send them a strong delusion so that they would believe the lie. This is, this is really frightening stuff. If you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just say to you that what we've just studied together, the catastrophic results of this seal may seem to you to be surreal, unbelievable, because nothing like this has ever happened in your lifetime. Nothing like this has ever happened in recorded human history. But remember, the message of this book is real and certain because back in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told it is the testimony of Jesus. 
and it's going to happen. The message to you is this, and it's, a, it's not an easy one for me to deliver, but this is the message. If you will not repent, Hebrews 10.31 says this, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you continue in your rebellion, that's what you will face. I plead with you to turn from your sin and accept the grace offered to you in the gospel. There will be people living during the tribulation who do that, who respond to God's offer of grace in Christ, in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, in his resurrection. They will repent. They will believe in Christ. And many of them will even be martyred for their faith. Tonight, where you sit, you can turn from your sin in your heart and throw yourself on the mercy of God. For us who are followers of Christ, what should our response to these seals be? Well, first of all, let's admit that these are hard things. We should take no more delight or joy in the destruction of the wicked than God himself does. Yes, we look forward to justice being done on those who have perpetrated horrific crimes against others and against God, but we don't find joy in that. So what should we do? First of all, we pray for the salvation of the people on this planet because, folks, this is not make-believe. This is the testimony of Jesus himself to us. This is what is coming. Pray for the people on this planet. Number two, long for justice if they refuse to repent as God himself does. It's okay to say, God, how long before you pay back those who are murdering children by the millions every year on this planet? It's okay. Number three, share the gospel, warning the people in our lives about the wrath to come. And thank God every day that we who have believed in Christ will be rescued from the wrath to come. We will instead be enjoying, like the tribulation saints, rest and the joys of heaven. Please hear me. Not because we deserve it, but because Christ deserves it. And we are permanently in him because he is ours and we are his. We are safe forever. Think about it this way. People alive then will try to shield themselves from God's wrath in caves. We do it in the cleft of the rock, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, The First Six Seals, The Tribulation Begins. On the next program, Tom will begin a new series, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today, could you share a few closing thoughts? Friend, can I just encourage you to acknowledge that these events will happen? Because God not only knows the future, He's determined the future before the foundation of the world. These events are absolutely sure to come. At the same time, we need to understand that while these are hard things, 
The fact that God's wrath is going to be poured out on those who don't believe in him should drive us, should motivate us to pray for the salvation of those in our circle who are lost, that they would come to know the grace that's found in Christ alone, to share the gospel with them. In fact, friend, can I just appeal to you, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, the only way you can escape the wrath of God that's coming is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection. Won't you trust him today? Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 